that nutrition is as much a social science and a behavioral science as it is a health science. Mm-hmm. And that is very much my area of interest as well is, you know, food and nutrition from a behavioral perspective. Welcome to Social Fabric, conversations with people about their passion and their interaction with the community. This week's guest is Petra Fulham, who has turned her passion for cooking and food into a business, helping others improve their health by a better appreciation of their food intake. If you're enjoying this episode, there are more on socialfabric.ie, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get yours. The show is also broadcasted weekly on Dublin's Near FM 90.3. Can I call you up a while on Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Just sit and talk a while. Pleasure for Thanks a million for this. Um, what I wanted to ask you first of all, where does the name come from, Petra? Yeah, I asked my mum this and she said it was just a name that she liked. Now, kind of, when you Google Petra, obviously it's a place in the Middle East um, and it means rock. So, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, you obviously not from around here. You're no. Not Irish. No. So tell me a bit about the background. Uh, I was born in Brunei. Um, my parents both worked for an oil company and. Um, Traveled quite a bit. I was the youngest of three, I have two older brothers. Um, yeah, I lived there till I was about six. And then my dad got a post. Um, I, re- <laughs> I later found out that he was either had the option of going to Perth in Australia, Egypt, or Aberdeen in Scotland. And they chose Aberdeen um, because both my parents' parents were still alive and they kind of felt, you know, their kind of European uh, route, so to speak. And so decided to move to Scotland. Yeah, northeast Scotland from Brunei. Have you any recollection of Brunei? Very much. Yeah, I do. I do. You know, sometimes your memory kind of is sparked either by family photos. But um, no, I remember, very much remember our house. It was on poles. It was a, kind of like a one level, but it was on poles for wildlife reasons. And I think also monsoon flooding. Um, and I remember the route to the beach. I remember our neighbours, the houses around. Um, and I have a real recollection of the dustbin men because they were Malay. And so Malay had, is the... Malay, what's Malay? Malaysian. Okay, Malay, Malaysian. Sure, sure, yeah. Okay. And they used to wear these weights in their ears as earrings. Mm-hmm. And they had these lobes, very, very long. And it, should, it used to show their status. Okay. So there were these, my mom still has them. They're kind of these really heavy weights. Um, <laughs> and I always remember that they used to wear these in their ears. Yeah, funny memories. And uh, the Brunei is a sultan of Brunei? Yeah, sultan of Brunei, so, yeah. Were you like a were you an expat community then, or yeah. or were you mingling with the with the locals? No, we lived in a camp called Panaga, and it was an expat camp mainly for the British and for the Dutch mm. families that worked for Shell. Okay, 
and then then your folks decided they obviously they're both Dutch, yeah. Yeah, yeah both my parents are. And from decided Holland. that Aberdeen was the nearest place to to, to Holland to Hungary. Yeah, um, my dad's actually the only true Dutchman, so to speak, in our family. All our family are born in different countries, which. <laughs> When we were younger and we would travel, we'd get kind of quite unusual looks at the passport uh, control. Um, my eldest brother was born in Nigeria, and then my middle brother was born in Manchester in London. Um, and my mum was actually born in Curaçao, which is just off the coast of Venezuela. Wow. So, and she lived there till she was 20. Her parents um, also actually worked uh, for our refinery there. So... Yeah. Because that's a, that's an interesting one. We had this conversation with somebody recently about, you know, where are you from? What defines you? Mm. I mean, there's a perfect example. Are you five of you, and effectively you're, you're all different citizens of the world. Mm. But how do you how do you define it? what what I do you know? Are you Irish? Are you Scottish? Are you from Brunei? Are you Dutch? Do you can you define your nationality? I can't, no. Um, I think I've always grown up kind of almost feeling like, like I don't belong anywhere. Mm. It's very hard when someone asks me where am I from and <laughs> I'll either kind of think am I going to know this person for a long time or is this going to be a very short conversation because <laughs> if it's going to be just a fleeting meeting and a short conversation then I have been known to just tell a white lie and just say I'm from Holland and I'll say oh we're from and then I'll just say Bloemendal but that's where my dad's from um, and hopefully that they won't ask me too many questions about which school I went to because I wouldn't obviously know um, but then obviously if someone if it's someone I know that I'm gonna you know have a friendship with or whatever then I will absolutely uh, tell them the long story so yeah because it I mean really they're talking about nurture and nature and all of that but mm. I mean obviously your family is your family and as you move together different parts of the world still your family doesn't matter where you, you know your passport was just a piece of paper but has that defined any of you like i know are your brothers do they feel dutch do they feel i do you, do you i know? definitely feel a kinship with uh the dutch culture and dutch nationality especially when i go back to holland mm. And there is, and you might have this, obviously you've been out of Italy for so mm. long, but when I go back to Holland, and obviously I speak the language because I didn't speak any English until I was six, until we moved to Aberdeen. So speaking the language and yeah, there, there is, there is a familiarity, there's a kinship there, you know, when I'm there. Um, but do I feel Dutch? I don't know. I don't know. And it wasn't really until I actually met Colin, who was kind of perplexed at the the diversity of um, yeah residencies, you know, that, that our family has had, so to speak, or even cultural and national identities. Because, you know, he was born and bred Dublin and, yeah, is, is Irish through and through. And so couldn't really understand why I didn't feel, you know, yeah, that depth of Dutch connection. But then, I mean, I've been in Ireland now nearly 15 years. And in another five years time, I would have been in Ireland as long as I would have been in Scotland. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, mean, I was interested. Because yeah, it, yeah. And I don't feel, I mean, I certainly don't feel Scottish. Sure. 
um, certainly don't feel Irish. Um, Brunei was six, six years of my very formative sure. years. Uh, and it's definitely a part of who I am. But that whole kind of cultural national identity, yeah, I'm a bit of an enigma in that way. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. So the, fir the first song you gave me is um, Learning to Fly by Tom Petty. Mm, why, yeah. Why that song? Oh, this is, um, this is me 16 with my Doc Martin boots and a mane of hair and full of rebellion. Yeah, I just absolutely love this song. Well, I started out down a dirty road. Started out all alone, and the sun went down as across the hill, and the town lit up. The world gets still I'm learning to fly But I ain't got wings Coming down Is the hardest thing Well, the good old days And that was my next question, it was about um, college in Scotland That's why you, you ended up uh, then Worked, uh, living in Scotland and Aberdeen, you, you, you did all your study there and then college throughout Scotland. Tell me a bit about your, that 16 year old oh, that's Petra so in, uh, <laughs> in Scotland. So we moved to Aberdeen and I remember, like I said, you know, certain memories are kind of taken because of family photos, but I remember the plane landing in Aberdeen Airport when I was six and all I could remember was just the grey the great it was it was march 1983 and coming from you know obviously a very kind of tropical climate aberdeen was just i mean it was very exciting it was like a big adventure we were there for nine years and so i was in primary school there and then had three years of secondary schooling two or three years of secondary schooling and then my dad took early retirement so we then moved up north uh, to inverness oh, so just when you think you can't go any further north, you go another hour. Um, and it was very remote, very different from where we were in Aberdeen. It was a beautiful home just in the countryside. Uh, yeah, trying to fit in at the age of 15. Yeah, because I mean, you, you well, you fitted in as you were six, so I'm assuming going into primary school, you were yeah. all, it was okay. But then you're 15, that's, that's a pretty important age to oh, yeah. drop everything and all your friends and yeah it was hard it was really hard um my eldest brother had left home by then and actually martin my middle brother he was going to uni mm. yeah uh in edinburgh so it was really only myself and then my parents uh that moved up north and i still had a good couple of years left of secondary school so yeah it was really hard and trying to fit in was even you know going back to that kind of you know, identity piece, again, you know, being this known as the Dutch girl, you know, that lived somewhere else and 
uh, yeah, it was really hard. I, I won't lie. It was really, really tricky. Because uh, Inverness, I was there a couple of times. It's a, it's a fantastic part of the world, but it's, it's quite remote, isn't it? It's, mm. it's not that big of a place. And, uh, yeah. There was you very much, did you very much feel like the, the only Dutch person in town? Oh, completely, yeah, because they, their community is made up of people who were born there. They were mm. born in their homes there. There was a post box and there was a telephone box and there was obviously the pub. You know, and it was a very, and without, you know, a very simple way of living. They, they're, they're a very rural community, I suppose. And my parents loved that because mum loves golf. My dad's a radio ham, you know, he, <laughs> they were in their element, but obviously had a 15 year old to, uh, to, yeah, to raise. So and what, what, what did you, how did you cope with that? How did you cope with uh, those couple of years? I mean, what was it? What, what did you do? I mean, as if I remember me as a 15, I needed to have all my friends around all the time. I need to have as many as possible around so I could play football and all of that. But what were you doing? How did you cope? Yeah, I found I, I find friends that I could connect with, but I knew I wanted something. I knew I wanted something else. Mm. Yeah, I won't, I won't lie. Um, I felt very kind of constrained, very constricted, uh, knew that there were other experiences out for me. Yeah, definitely. It was, yeah, it was a really challenging couple of years and adolescence at that time. It was, it was tough. Yeah. Okay. But then you went on to, you moved to Edinburgh, did you, for college or, or how did you, how, yeah. did you, how did you escape Inverness? How did I escape? Well, actually, you know. <laughs> Yeah, like you say, I mean, it's a beautiful place and the people are just so kind and they're a really lovely community, but I just didn't fit. I just didn't fit in. So when I was in fifth year in, in secondary school, I knew that I just had to get out. Yeah, and I think my parents really recognized, you know, <laughs> we're going to have to make some changes. So mom, before I did my, the, 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 the Scottish education system is very different to the Irish and you do, you can do your exams in fifth year or you can do an extra year in sixth year. Mm -hmm. So I managed to just get what I needed. Uh, I got the new hires in fifth year. And so mom came home one day and uh, she said, there's a couple of options, you know, that I'd like to discuss. And one of them was going to college after fifth fifth year and I was only 17 mm -hmm. uh, this was the most appealing thing ever because it meant freedom it meant independence and it meant yeah just moving away so yeah she said um, you've always kind of been a foodie and liked food and cooking and would you consider studying nutrition and obviously this was 25 years ago when nutrition really wasn't you know, a hot topic as such. Uh, but yeah, I managed to get a place at Queen Margaret's in Edinburgh. Are you call it, are you then you did the three, four years, whatever it is. So I did the degree in nutrition, yeah. And uh, then went on to do a postgraduate scholarship as well, yeah. Mary Black, this song, Babes in the Wood. Yeah. <laughs> What's that song about? <laughs> Why, why it was it was a hard uh, I mean I love Mary Black and Colin was the one that introduced me to to her music and I I mean you could pick any of Mary Black songs yeah I absolutely love them Babes in the Wood yeah I just think it's a real kind of moody moody song I love it 
Now, you mentioned Colin a few times for the listeners who don't know, Colin is your husband mm. and he's one of my best friends. Um, and I know a bit about him, but uh, so that's why you're in Ireland, I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to us all. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you came to Ireland 15 years ago. Mm. What was that like 15 years ago? I can't actually remember what I, what was happening there. But when you arrived from Scotland to Ireland, was it much of a change? So we were living in a place called Aberdour, which is five, which is just uh, north of Edinburgh, across the Fourth Row Bridge. And that's where we had Connor, our first. And Colin wanted to travel. So before we went came to Ireland, we went traveling for six months around Australia, New Zealand with Connor, who was 18 months at the time. <laughs> and it was brilliant. It was really the making of us. It was fantastic. Um, we actually had our visas in for Canada, like lock, stock and barrel. We had paid the deposit, everything. It was in process. And I remember on a very gloomy day in Canberra, <laughs> We were sitting in the van and uh, we both realized actually that Australia and New Zealand are just, they're so far away. I mean, it, it just feels that way. You just feel so far away from home. And so we were trying to think, gosh, maybe Canada isn't for us, you know, because it's pretty far away from Europe as well. So Colin then said, would you consider moving to Ireland? And at that point, I just said, yeah, grand, <laughs> whatever. Um, had I realized, you know, what that actually meant, uh, we had all our stuff at my parents' house because we, we'd, we'd literally sold everything to do our traveling and all our belongings were at my parents' house. And I thought, okay, so yeah, we're, we're, we're doing this. And <clears throat> landing in Ireland was a bit of a culture shock, to be honest, because I think a lot of people, they do... They, they kind of do put the UK and Ireland in quite similar pots. I I, I believe that. I thought, well, Ireland were, were just all the same. The reality was very, very different. Uh, we actually moved to a suburb in from in Dublin. And I, again, completely felt out of place. It just felt there wasn't the community that I was looking for. And then Inc was born, our second uh, child. And then within a year, I actually did say to Colin, look, we're going to have to move to a place where we can feel that we can raise our kids as part of a community. So that means either going back to Scotland or we look elsewhere. But the, the, the lack of community, you, it was mm. there, it was, do you think it was it, was it you not fitting in? Was it, was it Colin not fitting in either? What, what do you think? And I, I think it was me. 
Okay. Yeah, I think it was me. And I, I'm just curious because we have a similar life story where you know we changed countries and a couple of times, and but I know I'm a completely different person, and I do tend to feel in a lot easier. Mm. Um, but curious because you had to do it at this stage probably three or four yeah. times, and so you you kind of knew what you needed, yeah. and you kind of. And um, can you see the pattern? No, no, no. But uh, look, it's fair enough. You, you, you know, fifteen, you have to change to go somewhere else, mm. and then seventeen. Yeah. So now you, this stage, you have two kids, and you made a decision. No, I need to be somewhere where I'm comfortable. And um, yeah, and I think we we moved into a rental there, you know, in in Dublin, and. I got a feeling that there was a, a good few families that her, were moving through that rental property and the the neighbors, you know, it, it must be hard, you know, then kind of befriending another new neighbor, you know, if, if there's a yearly change, so to speak. So I did feel I, I did find friends that I'm still friends with. But I don't know, I, I just for me, they're they're. It's a feeling. It's it's not about what the place looks like. It's not about what it has to offer. Mm. It's about a feeling. It's like when you walk into a home, what's the feeling? So, yeah, that's what that's what I was looking for. And knowing that I wanted to raise my family and not keep moving around. But fifteen years ago in Dublin or the suburbs of Dublin, I'm assuming you weren't the only Dutch stroke Scottish person. There was already a community of different nationalities were you or yeah I wasn't tapping into that no I mean I had two young kids like one of two and a half and you know one just born Uh, my focus was just kind of on kids Mm. now you know if that would be me now absolutely I'd be looking to kind of hook in with different you know communities but back then no and also just that the actual the actual culture shock of the move Mm. Um, what, what was it so different from you say you know in your mind UK and Ireland were the same thing and then you came here it was completely but what was, what was so different I wonder whether the Irish as 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 a culture are very friendly homely community oriented people and I could see that they had that bond with each other but again, I felt slightly on the periphery, so to speak. Okay. So that's what I say. It's probably me because me trying to fit in with that already established community. Whereas when we moved to Greystones, I think the year that we moved, it was 2004, 2005. There was an awful lot of us that had just moved here for whatever reason. 2004, 2005 was a year that many families moved to Greystones. And so it was almost like we were all starting together. Okay. Yeah. All right. So this song is perfect because they're all before my time, mm. all before your time, yeah. by <laughs> <Rayla> Montaigne. <laughs> what about this song then? Ray Montaigne, yeah, again, I just think he has such a soulful voice. Uh, we've been seen twice live. I think it's actually the first time, yeah, you were there too. Great, great songwriter, former guitarist, love his music. Yeah, it's just, again, it's a feeling, isn't it? It's a feeling that music can evoke for you. And I find his music very relaxing. I actually had him on my uh, playlist for uh, when I was birthing Anna, my last child. 
just really evokes a yeah, sense of peace and relaxation. When I was a young man looking for a pot of gold Everywhere I turned the doors were closed Took every ounce of faith I had to keep on keeping on and Still I felt Anybody tie me down I lost a few good friends along the way I was raised up poor and I wanted more But maybe I'm a little too proud Looking back I see a kid who was just afraid Okay, so we're just talking about the family and the kids, so we're kind of going through a bit of a chronology here, but mm. so you have four kids, lovely four kids, four of them, and parenting is quite challenging. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, but um, and now now you're in the community that you're happy with that you've set up, you have a nice nice community, nice um, support from everybody. Mm. I'm assuming that you feel that way. Um, but one thing we were talking about before you switch on the microphone, I want to talk to you about one of your children was born with, with disability. Mm -hmm. And what was that like as in terms of support? Like, you know, he spent quite a long time in Crumlin and then what was that like? Well, I mean, I don't know what it was like, but what that support that from Crumlin to Enable Ireland to all of that, what, what's, that, what's that journey like? And what's it been like for the last few years? Yeah, when he was born, uh, it was a huge surprise uh, that he needed the level of care that he clearly needed. He was born with an orthopedic condition that also affected his airway, which uh, needed a tracheostomy, which is an artificial airway tube. We didn't know that any of that would happen. Um, so you're kind of you're kind of launched into a different world, to be honest. Mm. He was in Crumlin Children's Hospital just until he was two years old. He came home. So an inpatient at a high dependency ward. And Crumlin, they, they, it's a bit of a planet in itself. You know, there's a whole inner world there that, if, yeah, if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's very hard to kind of conceptualize, you know, what it's like. They are, they're incredible, what they offer families and the support that we got there was invaluable. I remember, I remember some pivotal moments of people that I met, you know, that were just, yeah, really actually, it was make or break. And uh, I remember when Christopher was three weeks old and he needed to have the emergency tracheostomy um i clearly i wasn't coping very well and i saw him in the icu and they called they called psych you know and the psychiatrist came down and was one of the most beautiful humans who just offered such wisdom and i was really able to hear him he said you know let the doctors take care of his medical needs and you start building a relationship with your son and it was support like that mm. that was just so so heartening 
And it really made such a difference because otherwise you can so easily just be left to kind of process and function and work through it on your own. When you have a child with a lot of medical needs, you know, your, your kind of role as a parent can kind of become a little clouded. You know, are you the carer? Are you the mm. parent? It's, it's very different than when you're able to take a baby home and you can nurture and parent and care for them. In, in hospital, there are so many other, you know, components to, to, to their early life. Then when we were discharged home, the support we got from nurses, we were linked in with Naval Ireland services, we were linked in with home help, um, and even the, the community in Greystones, the school community, the, the friends, family, just invaluable. I mean, I always say, you know, we, we, we didn't raise Christoph or, or any of our kids really, but particularly Christoph in those early years on our own. Mm. You can't. It, it's impossible with that level of need. The reason I was asking you, because we keep hearing every day on the radio, you know, bashing of the HSE, bashing of this, but, you know, it's constant. And, and I know there's a lot of issues there, but I want to be sure it's, it's understood that there, there is a fantastic support out there and and Cromwell in particular you know like these stories you know they need to be told you know and people that this those guys yeah. that, that that consultant you met that nurse you met and there's hundreds of them you know mm. nameless unfortunately you remember every single one of them but I do yeah but most of us I don't know any of them and they're the guys who get the the night bus go home you know on, thing, on a yeah. bad pay yeah they yeah. made a difference you and to your son and, and uh, which is you yeah know, they should be that's that story should be told more and more you know and it's important too and just a, 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 again out of curiosity did you find was there any issues with um um with so with the naval island sorry that's one i want to ask you is i don't know enough about him we did some fundraising for them in the past but i don't mm. know enough about a, a naval island what do enable enable ireland do so they are a service for families and children with disability. We were linked in with them very early on. They provide uh, therapies, physiotherapy, speech therapy, psychology support, okay. uh, occupational therapy. Yeah, uh, and we were very lucky to be able to avail of all of those uh, from the day he was discharged and they they really work on such an individual level with the family and with the children uh, the social work as well is amazing they're they're just they're they're people that have such a depth of understanding of what living with disability actually means and the limitations you know that there are but opening doors, you know, that that's their kind of that, their their tagline, you know, is fly your kite high, regardless, you know, of your disability. And they really make things happen. They mm. they, they really open doors for children um, who would otherwise, you know, maybe not. Yeah. Have as quality of life as they do. You should say he's a, he's a great kid, apart from being a Liverpool fan. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> doing me. <laughs> we all have our faults. He's a Liverpool fan. Now this song you have, uh, I don't know this one, Yoruma. What's the title? The you river, in, the river flows in you. Yeah. Yoruma. Tell me a bit more about it. 
I absolutely love piano music. Okay. And um, when my friends would be listening to the likes of Blur and Oasis, I'd be secretly listening to Richard Claderman's classical <laughs> hits. No joke on my Walkman. I just love piano music. And when it was actually Connor that got the chords for the guitar for this piece, and I'd I'd heard I'd heard the piano piece played somewhere else before, and thought that's just beautiful. I'd love to be able to play that one day. And then when Connor started strumming it on the guitar, I thought that sounds really familiar. So I asked him to to look up the the manuscript music um, for it, and. There's two, there's two main versions of the, the, the composition. One is in G major, the, the, the easier one that I'm learning. And then the other one's in A major, which is far trickier. I'll get to that. But I've started learning it as a piece of music. And the joy, it just, yeah, just relearning something that you learned in your childhood, particularly when it comes to music. It's just really, really great. Really love it. So now we get to the nutrition. You mentioned earlier on you were, you were always a foodie where you always making cakes with your mom and yeah. things like that. And then obviously you did your your, your um, college uh, degree, but you went back to to nutrition recently, right? And that's that was one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you because you know you are your four children, loads going on, but then you find the time to go off and and reskill. Is that the right word? Yeah. Or, so what did you study recently, and what did you qualify as? So I studied nutrition science and therapeutics. Um, mm. It's a higher diploma in nutritional therapy. Nutrition is a very fast-paced, moving area of research. Uh, I did my degree, would have qualified 20 years ago, again, when it wasn't a hot topic. And I suppose, you know, the research that was kind of up and coming then is kind of real. Mm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> just very different now. And our understanding is developing continuously. The nutrition therapy uh, diploma has a great kind of foundation of functional medicine where it looks at really the, the interconnecting of all body systems. Whereas maybe, you know, what I would have learned in, in college 20 years ago was a little bit more compartmentalized. Mm. And with nutrition just being just, yeah, such a vast topic in, in health science, it uh, it was really necessary for me to upskill, yeah, having had four kids and knowing that I did want to kind of move back into that, you know, field of work. And you know the way you say that it's changed so much, um, is that because of... Um, of research on on the, what what has it changed? Because 
like you know we used to always teach the pyramid the foot pyramid that was um, I'm probably they probably still teach the foot pyramid which then has been proved is not quite no. the right way no. so why, where is the research that has changed is that research on the human body is there a defect on the human body what has changed that or is the quality of the food I think it's an accumulation of mm. our understanding of the impact of nutrition on health but I would also say that nutrition is as much a social science and a behavioral science that is a health science. Mm. And that is very much my area of interest as well is, you know, food and nutrition from a behavioral perspective, looking at people's relationship with food, because that's something that's very much changing, you know, with mm. the, the widespread information that's available for people and, the the research is yeah it's it's just evolving every single day there our understanding of the human body I mean obviously you know we, we we know the basics but the the components of nutrition science are very much developing it's a very exciting area yeah because like I know you grow your own you always have you always have something growing which is great and I think well, we should do it and I will eventually someday get around to it but the fact that now everything is available all day every day you know you can buy anything you want at any time so that must present its own challenges you know that you were kind of in the way we were uh, you know the season kind of dictated what we could eat what we in a way it was a much healthier way to eat because mm. you just ate what you could when you when it was available that must have a massive impact on on our diets and our nutrition at the moment being able to to buy I don't know strawberries today and apples all year round. That must be pretty bad, is it? Yeah, I mean you can look at it from an anthropological perspective and say, you know, people in Northern Europe, why are we eating pineapples and avocados and mangoes? Um, I I try not to go into the minutia of of okay. nutrition to that degree. Sometimes I like to kind of pull back a bit and just kind of keep it more simple. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, if if there's a wide variety of foods available to you and you know health health is made up of so much more than just what we eat you know sure. our, our socioeconomic status is a huge component our physical ability our mm. there are so many aspects to us that make up our health and the the work that i really enjoy doing with people is to kind of sometimes take a step back um and really look at how do you feel about eating that food because sometimes we can dichotomize foods into this is good and this is bad, mm -hmm. you know, and then we over identify when we eat those quote unquote bad foods, so to speak. And so I kind of just tried to keep things in context. Yeah. And one thing I'm really interested, so you have kids between the age of 17 and Anna's uh, seven. seven. So there are four different stages of schooling. Um, and that itself is a challenge in terms of nutrition, making yeah. sure they get the right lunch and making sure they don't get uh, contaminated, as I like to call it, by what's out there, you know, mm. the, you know the, the vending machines in anywhere. So uh, what the, the, that must be really challenging. How do you deal with that? How do you make sure that your four kids get the right food daily? And what, what do you do? And what would you suggest to, to I... people like me that would like to <laughs> <laughs> make sure that... I think, you know, it, it comes back to, well, there are aspects of your child's, you know, life that you can control and there's aspects that you can't. Mm -hmm. And 
if we look at the food that we have available in the home, that's where I try and get as much variety and as home cooked meals. And I have, you know, the, the means and the privilege in a way to be able to, you know, make food at home and I enjoy it. It's, it's part of it's, it's so much of what I enjoy to do. Um, I think keeping things simple, we don't need to have all these, again, quote unquote, superfoods, you know, to be healthy. If we can kind of keep it to simple home cooked soups, you know, whole grain breads, fruits, veggies, and, you know, whether you eat meat or not, or fish. Um, and then also to try not to make too much of a point about foods that would be considered convenience or junk or, you know, whatever the label is, because that can kind of put those foods on a pedestal. And the more we put those foods on a pedestal, the more confusing it's going to be for kids as opposed to, well, you know, say, for example, take treat foods. I don't really use the word treat because often, you know, parents can say, oh, well, if you do that, then you can have a treat or, you know, if you're good, you can have a treat. But then the child can start to understand, well, that treat food is also considered unhealthy, you know, whether it's whatever. Mm. And it can be a very confusing message, yeah. do you know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So I try and kind of keep the labels to a minimum. It's just food. Food is food. Sure. There are foods that have a really nutritious profile. And then there's foods that they just taste good and they're fun, you know, and your kids are going to enjoy them. And I think just taking the focus away from them being good or bad but then offering a wide variety of foods in the home that's that's really where i'm at okay we'll go back to scotland for a minute with the proclaimers i'm on yeah. my way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's that all about a great song it's a brilliant song oh look this is an ode to my scottish brothers and sisters i guess yeah um, we played the proclaimers at our wedding uh, that was the final song that the band played and it was just lifted the roof it was brilliant i'm on my way from misery to happiness to be I'm on my way From misery to happiness to be I'm on my way To what I want from this world And years from now You'll make it to the next world And everything that you receive up yonder Is what you give to me the day I want Right, I took a right turn in Just want to stay for a minute with the nutrition. Um, we had this conversation over the years about different diets, and well, the word diet, I think, in itself is probably the wrong label. Um, going on a diet as such, mm. would you agree? Um, well, the technical word diet is actually just encompasses what you eat. Okay. But kind of diet culture has kind of taken yeah. that and ran with it, you know. Yeah. So, what's your view on? Um, yeah, at the moment we, we have all these labels, you know, you're vegan, you're pescatarian, you're vegetarian, you're whatever, there's millions. You're you know, keto, you're paleo. Yeah, there's a yeah. million, there's too many of them to, to even bother mm. with. What's your view on uh, what I like to call it, this excluding diets, you know, things where you're just taking things out of your daily... Do you know, it's probably the number one reason why people are so uncertain with 
what and how to eat. And it saddens me because we're with with all these kind of labels, we're moving further and further away from our innate intuitive ability to choose what foods are good for us. Granted, we live in an environment that is very conducive to that uncertainty and that confusion. It's very conducive to making choices that might not serve our health very well. And then again, depends on our socioeconomic status. It's a huge interest of mine. I, I, I'd really um, love to work, you know, in that area, working to for better equality in in, in nutrition. It's um, yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge topic. The the thing I like working most on with people is kind of tuning back into that intuitive part of our of what we know is good for us. Because taking aside what. It seemed to be uh, a reality, which is the uh, the meat industry, the dairy industry, which is the damage it's doing to the environment and so on. Mm. This is just a large scale, but I mean, so is the soya beans, and so is the, mm. the, 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 the honey production yeah. at the large scale. Yeah. So all of that is, is wrong. But taking that aside, maybe go back 50 years when we didn't have all of this, would you... Is your diet, do you exclude anything from your diet or you just... No. Okay. No. So you eat anything that you feel is right for you, be it meat, fish, and yeah. veggies. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I enjoy a wide variety of foods, and yeah, veg would be something. I mean, I grow grow some of my own veg, and just the connection, you know, growing your own food is 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 amazing. It's it's really valuable if you if you can. If you look at all the food groups. There are, you could actually at this stage with the information that we have on all these kind of different growing methods and all the rest of it, you could actually go through every single food there is and find something, find a reason not to eat it. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's peanuts, whether it's broccoli, whether it's whatever, you know, and that's what I mean. I try and kind of move away from the minutia of that when it comes Mm -hmm. to nutrition science, because our bodies are really intelligent. They're really clever, aside from our cognition, yeah, yeah. you know? So I think when we can tap into that intuitive part of, say, for example, there are some people that just don't enjoy meat or they just don't enjoy, you know, whether it's pasta or broccoli or whatever, but moving away from kind of label labeling foods, this is what I should be eating and this is what I shouldn't be eating, as opposed to, I really fancy a men's pie right now. but then you might have had you know nice broccoli soup with homemade bread you know for lunch what it's it's and i try and refrain from using the word balance too much because it's really not very sexy but that's that's where we're at you know trying to find that balance between you know eating and enjoying foods that are nutritionally beneficial but also that we enjoy and uh, i mean that goes with um what we discussed a few few evenings ago about um, living more in a more natural way. Mm. Yeah, that's the phrase, is it? The, the living in a more natural way, or yeah, that's that's taken from Tony Riddle. Tony Riddle, yeah, that's yeah. It. So tell me a bit about that because you're starting to kind of use that um, um, philosophy as such. Mm. You, know, you probably always have, but now you kind of uh, what 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 do you do in terms of trying to to live a bit more naturally. 
So, yeah, yeah, so I think if, if I could, his quote would be, um, we can't all live in nature, but we all can, we can all live more naturally. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, gardening for me would be one step closer to connecting with the earth. Um, do a lot of kind of any kind of physical activity I do would be outdoors. I mean, I'm, I'm not personally, I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not a fan of the gym mm-hmm. at all. I feel that we can move our bodies um or, you know, outdoors, I, I use the forest as my circuit, sure. you know, with the dog. I really enjoy that. Um, in the fairer months, I would swim in the sea. Uh, it's, you know, it's December now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't get in the sea this <laughs> this month. Um, or, yeah, th- those would definitely be some things that I would, yeah, kind of tune into that feed that part of me that knows that I need nature. Yeah. You find it, it definitely helps that. Oh my gosh. Yeah, very much, very much. And again, this is another quote from Tony, actually. Uh, what I really love just around the gardening is, you know, green plants, they stimulate the ancestral eye. Like when I first read that, that just really resonated so deeply because again, it reinforces and reflects the idea of just our innate connection with the earth. Mm-hmm. And yeah, being around plants, and that's what gardening offers me. Yeah, so the, the growing, I tried a couple of times. I, I don't have the discipline um, all the time, but mm. I, I will. But there is something about, you know, going to get your own carrot to make a soup. And yeah. it's, it's quite, yeah. And we're so detached from it now. Mm. The, the, the smell, there's not even smells of, of carrots anymore when you go to a supermarket. They don't smell like, of anything. It just. Most fruits and veg don't smell like anything in the supermarket. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, I have about four apple trees or four fruit trees, and we don't have a huge garden, but I have. It's funny how you can, when you start growing your own food, how you can become quite reliant then on certain seasonal produce. So we'd be lucky to have two apple trees that kind of fruit successively. So we would have apples for two to three months. Mm and Good. just the the flavor and the smell like that's a proper apple yeah. yeah it's it's yeah great excellent so then you have crowded house um better be home soon mm. what's that song yeah crowded house they were my first uh concert i know yeah when i was 17 18 and uh took the city link from edinburgh to manchester to my friend kate um we went uh yeah, we went to see Crowded House. They were brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And again, it's funny how these things come around. Um, the lads would play it on the guitar. And it's pushing me aside So you'd stretch on forever And I know I'm right For the first time in my life that's why I tell you You'd better be home soon Stripping back the coats Of lies and deception Back to nothingness Like a week in the desert 
Just the last bit before we go, I want to ask you about what you currently, you kind of set up a, little, a business at this stage, um, a bit of consultancy mm-hmm. you're doing for yeah. Nutri. Tell me a bit about it. What, what do you offer? When, if I come to you, what, what would you do with me or with anybody that wants <laughs> some advice? Yeah, so it would completely depend on what your personal health concerns would be. That's the beauty of nutritional therapy is it really works with the person as an individual. We would work a lot with gut health. So look at digestive health. Digestive health is really a kind of at a fundamental part of, you know, physical health in itself. And I'm really interested in children's health and nutrition and women's health, particularly hormonal health. I can see just how those the, the, the physiology of that, it can really impact your quality of life. And making simple nutritional changes. Sometimes there's functional testing involved, so we look at stool testing, hormonal testing. Yeah. So if anybody listening goes, okay, well, I, I would be interested. Uh, so they they'll contact you. They say, look, I'm, you know, I'm feeling very sluggish, yeah. or I'm, you know, I have bad skin, or whatever, yeah. anything at all. And, yeah. Uh, so what what happens then? Is it to meet with you the first time you do a consultation and then choose a path where you're going to follow each other you're going to follow her or him for a number of weeks so how does it work just yeah again it's very individual so i would you know there's a lot of questions to get your medical history see we the functional medicine approach looks at antecedents mediators and triggers which so antecedents would be you know what's what's happened in your life that might you know play part in your health concerns at the moment mediators what are the things that are keeping it going and triggers actually become come before mediators you know it's like this did something happen you know when it comes to ibs it could be a very stressful situation or for hormonal reasons it could be did you paint your house, you know, where you kind of exposed to toxins, did that impact your hormonal profile? I mean, those are, again, those would be more kind of the, the, the sciencey parts mm. to nutrition therapy. The other part that I would really work alongside, though, is to preserve someone's relationship with food, because as we were talking about before, what can happen is if there is a reason to start maybe removing certain foods for a short period of time, for whatever reason, you just need to be really careful that someone you know, that, that the relationship with food doesn't become compromised as, as such. Mm-hmm. So that would be something that I would really keep in mind. Yeah. And do you find that people coming to you, because it's, it was always a bugbear of mine, um, the very few times I've been to a doctor, I was never asked about what I eat. Mm. Never. Um, whether it was a, whatever the reason I went in to see him, her, never asked me about my nutrition. Yeah. Because th- people come to you, have, have they been to a GP, have they been in my yeah i think we have to recognize that gps have a limited you know amount of 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 knowledge they also have a limited amount of time and that's why i suppose you know years ago they they decided actually nutrition is such a huge part of healthcare that we need to make sure that there are people qualified that can support patients that have more dietary requirements than maybe general practitioner requirements and I think it's now recognised that GPs are, and you know, those going through a medical degree are requiring more nutrition um, education. So yeah, it's I I I'm really compassionate towards GPs. I think they do a great job overall. If you think of the array of different 
conditions and people that walk through their door, whether it's, you know, kind of arthritis or mental health or you name it. There, there are so many different things that GPs have to work with. It would be great if there was, a, you know, maybe a clearer referral system mm-hmm. where, where they, they could identify, say, for example, if someone showed that they were pre-diabetic and that some dietary support intervention could really help prevent that from progressing into full-blown diabetes. Mm-hmm. You know, those kind of things. I mean, that's real kind of preventative healthcare, isn't it? It is, yeah. No, it's, um, uh, there's a, a doctor in the UK, Dr. Chatterjee. He's, yeah. he's a GP and he's yeah. actually gone the other way around. He's Wrong doing it. Yeah. He's fantastic. Yeah. 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 But um, so have you have you had a few clients? Is that yep. the right word? Yeah. And uh, it must be very rewarding when you when you as you go through the, the therapy. Is that therapy is the right word or or um, the consultancy you, you do with them? It must be very rewarding to get to see the results. Um, yeah, and it's a huge privilege and it's an absolute honor actually working with people because mm-hmm. as soon as you start talking about food you're hearing parts of their life that you wouldn't actually necessarily put together mm. but food is it, it it evokes memories you know they're they're yeah they're their their family their childhood um obviously we, we always relate it back to how is that impacting your nutrition choices and you know your access to food and it's it's an absolute honor to to work with people and see how they are able to bring their health back into balance because at the end of the day that's what nutrition therapy does it doesn't treat you know it, it, it does that that's not what we do we work in harmony mm-hmm. with you know what the body can do for itself and yeah apply scientific and evidence-based nutrition principles and i'm assuming that um but i'm only guessing that there's a less resistance to say for you you're sitting with me and you go well Andrea, you should really be looking at eating more I don't know, plant-based food for mm. the next couple of months mm-hmm. and maybe eliminate this particular dish for, for the next time. I suppose there's less resistance in that. Or do you find that people are actually, and I don't know addicted is the right word, but addicted to certain types of food that they can't do without? Yeah, so the whole kind of food addiction is a huge debate. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and any kind of... Uh, you know, when it comes to food, any kind of addiction often does come from some kind of restrictive behavior. I mean, that that's really very much evident now. So it's, it's a huge area of interest in mine. If, if you're showing that you're enjoying certain foods and you are feeling well, okay, well, we'll just park that for now. But if you're showing, you know, health concerns and that we could maybe relate it, possibly relate it to, you know, you enjoying a certain food, maybe too regularly or too mm. much of, then I would always try and, you know, discuss that with you and offer you alternatives. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Um, if anybody's interested in, in, in what you do and they want to, I'll, I'll put it on the show notes, but uh, how do they get in touch with you? Well... <laughs> I am about to launch a website, okay. um, and so yeah, I'll give you the details. Yeah. In the meantime, there'll be an email or something. That yeah. Can... Okay, absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Well, the last thing I always ask everybody is a couple of words of wisdom. It's things that uh, get you up in the morning. One sentence, one quote, something that gets you out of the bed in the morning. A word of wisdom. Oh wow! Yeah, connection. Yeah, staying connected with myself and those that mean the most of me. 
yeah, I think as you know, conversation we had recently around relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fostering positive relationships with those around you. That's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, knowing that I have four dependents and a life partner that I'm hugely invested in in my relationship with them. Yeah. Fantastic. We're going to leave it with uh, one of my favorites, the Sultan's Swing. Yeah. <laughs> by Dire Straits. Why did you choose that one? My eldest brother was a big music fan. And um, yeah, I, but he would, he used to listen to the likes of Death Leopard and White Snake and Bon Jovi and Meatloaf. And they were not to my liking at all. But then there was this band called Dire Straits, and uh, yeah, really, that that definitely caught my eye. So I allowed I, I allowed him to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, pleasure, Fulham. Thanks a million for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, pleasure. With the Sultans With the Sultans